0: It's about simulation as a reflexive tool for the team to talk about work and to improve on work.
1: Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel.
0: I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur.
1: I'm Jess Stokes-Parish and you're listening to Simulcast.
0: Connecting the healthcare simulation community.
1: So welcome to Simulcast and today we've got a special episode where we're going to be talking about the concept of patient safety, how it intersects with simulation, with a particular deep dive on the concept of safety two, which many of us have heard a lot about, but Probably the concept needs a little bit of granularity. And we're going to be having this conversation with Carl Horsley, who's an intensivist from New Zealand. How are you, Carl?
0: Good. Thanks very much for having me on. It's uh, very exciting.
1: Yes. Well, uh, just by way of a little bit of background to both the topic and to Carl, uh, we know that simulation, healthcare simulation and patient safety have often been put in the same sentence, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I'm not sure that we've realised the promise yet. And so I was quite inspired when I heard uh, Carl Horsley talk at the recent New Zealand uh, Anesthesia Society meeting where he talked about safety too, both in a practical sense and the work that he's been doing in his own intensive care unit, but also in a conceptual sense, which really gave me quite a few lessons. And then I was inspired to go off and read a chapter that he is one of the authors of, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, Simulation Approaches to Enhance Team and System resilience in the comprehensive healthcare simulation, improving healthcare systems. So proper introduction, Um, Carl's an intensivist at Middlemore Hospital, that's in New Zealand, and he's also the clinical lead for patient safety with the Health Quality and Safety Commission. And then his quote to me when I said, what do you actually do? He said, mainly, I just say yes to interesting things and see where they take me. That sounds fair enough. And here we are. And here we are. All right. Well, I think it is good to get the background story here, Carl. Obviously, every clinician is at least a bit interested in patient safety, but it sounds like it's become a particular interest of yours. Why and how is that? So,
0: I mean, I, I came through as an emergency medicine physician first, uh, and I loved emergency medicine. When I was coming through my training, if someone had said to me I'd end up in safety, I would have kind of um, looked on in horror. Uh, and I guess for me at that time, and often for many of us, safety is kind of this thing that's done to us. Um, mm. It's something away from the realities of work. And so I never really thought I'd end up doing safety work. I kind of came to this, though, with working in both emergency and intensive care, is that you get really clear about the complexity of the work we do, the uncertainty, the dynamic nature of the work, and how ambiguous it all is all the time. You know, mm. you are constantly mm-hmm. trying to make the right sort of choices. And so... Coming into simulation originally was trying to work out, well, how do I, um, how do we build teams that can deal with the realities of this sort of stuff? And we'd we'd really tried to do drills or do, you know, quite normal simulations, um, and and it kind of seemed like something was missing. And so I think at that time, my model of safety was very much like I I need to find out the things that people do that are wrong and try and fix them and debrief, get them to understand what's going on, and then they'll be better. Mm -hmm. And I think that was my model of safety. And, and over time, that model of safety really changed. And it, it, it kind of or I had a sabbatical and um, I started reading some of Eric Holnagel's work, I started reading a bit mm-hmm. more about complexity, Chris Nemeth's book on improving team communication, a lot of these these ideas of social construction, about uh, balancing loops and feedback loops, and, and then Holnagel's work on safety as this thing we build, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that that safety was the work we did it wasn't this thing out there it was what we did every day and and some of the understanding that came from that suddenly made me think quite differently and that's kind of the mm-hmm. start of that journey I've taken from there is exploring that concept of safety as safety is the work we do to to navigate risk and in, and in, in everything we do.
1: Yeah and I can understand that because as a emergency physician myself I also think we get exposed to systems uh, and their deficiencies and their opportunities very bluntly. Uh, And we can see that whenever we want to achieve something, it often is quite a complex and complicated uh, set of actions that we take. And so I think we do become aware of that, not that others don't as well, but certainly I can uh, empathise with your situation there. And it's interesting how you have framed up your team training at that point as feeling inadequate and I Got a little description of that. I've just been watching Ken Catchpole at the ASPE conference, and he was saying that so much of what's wrong with team training in healthcare is that it is teamwork as imagined, yeah. drawing on the work as imagined yeah, uh, totally. idea. Yeah. Uh, and that I think is quite true, isn't it? Because we see this idealized version of teamwork that happens in some of our simulation contexts, and then we wonder why there's a problem with transferring it to the real world.
0: Yeah, I, I, absolutely that. I mean, we when we did sim, we started off um, in the center and we were doing sims they our well designed. We'd spend a lot of time doing about debriefing and after a while we, we moved to in situ. But we still always ended up talking about, hey, I, I noticed you did this and I'm worried that you did that because of this and, you know, why did you do that? Um, and it was always, and it's really interesting when you talk to me about how do you debrief something that goes well? How do you break it down to say what made that work despite how challenging it was? It's often really hard and, and very, at the time I was doing my sim training was, you know, we'd often throw in a little, hey, I really like what you did there. That was great. But, but very commonly, we'd spend a lot more time talking about speaking up and leadership and, and all those kind of things. And it was really an idealized view of how teams function, you know, single leaders mm. having the answers, people speaking up and using tools.
1: I agree with you. I think we've still in that way positioned the organisational performance with us closing performance gaps for individuals in team working, which is a fair bit different to really understanding why the team works. Uh, oh, so interesting. All right, well, let's wind back a little bit. We're yeah, going sure. to come back to simulation, but I do want to start with a little of this conceptual work because you used a lot of language and a lot of frameworks that I think many people in simulation would still find unfamiliar. Sure. So can you wind us back a little bit? You've We've talked about concepts like safety one and safety two and the way we've approached it as wrong. Give me a little <laughs> bit more about wh- wh- how we've done it wrong before I, I, and uh, what some of these more emerging, frameworks are uh, whether or not they're better
0: who knows so, so i guess the thing to say is it's not about what we've done that's wrong it's about <laughs> and we kind of i have to hit this up and say it's not about safety one versus safety two as these two tribes at war they're, they're different perspectives on the way in which safety is created so and they're really used to illustrate a difference of point. so let's start with a couple of concepts first of all we talked about the work that we do in an emergency department say and if you talk to someone who doesn't work in an emergency department about What happens in emergency, they imagine ambulances pull up, they're seen by triage, they go through the area, they click on the button, they get seen and they get referred and then they go off and they they take some tablets and they get better. You know, it's kind of this, this production line and a lot of our language in the last 20 years maybe even has been industrial, you know, production line thinking about dwell times and flows and pressure. Um, linear. Linear, very linear. Yeah. Linear
1: and deterministic, I think, is the yeah. word I've
0: heard. <laughs> absolutely. And it's this idea almost that safety is about the reliability of those systems, that if everyone does the right thing all the time, then everything would be awesome. We focus on the outputs of the system, how fast we see people. Um, and, and because of that, we're really interested about how do we minimise the variability, how do we make sure that people do the right thing all the time, so we've put a lot of effort into really about sort of constraining the system to make sure that it works really well. Um, and and so if you have that kind of industrial model in your head, then your model of safety is that the, the system's intrinsically safe as long as everyone does what they're meant to do. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's, it, it works and it's only it doesn't work when someone stuffs up or it, it's some, mm-hmm. something unexpected happens. And, and that kind of – that's really a simple model. You know, that's a simplistic linear model of how safety is achieved in simple systems. Something breaks uh, and something mm. happens. There's a malfunction or someone doesn't do the right thing, which is very easy to determine what the right thing is, and there's a bad outcome. So that's quite a, a prominent early safety model about how safety is mm. created. And and it kind of has, it, this, it ties into the idea that safety is really where nothing happens. Mm. You know, safety is just things are—they're safe unless you yeah. do something wrong.
1: That's right. And then if we just were to find that thing and then prevent yeah. it ever happening again, we'll be sorted. Exactly.
0: And, you know, there's that yeah. great quote: "Was that if I could just get rid of the bad nurses, then none of these problems would ever happen. We'd be safe." You know, it's a—it's—and a, <laughs> yeah. it ties into the same kind of view of people as bad apples or bad components. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's got some interesting side effects, though, when you think about it in that way. It basically means. Well, if there's nothing bad happening, there's nothing interesting happening. So as long as you're not having bad events, then the fact, you know, as long as you're meeting your ED target, for example, then it's uninteresting to the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though it's getting harder and harder and there's more challenges and it's feeling more and more afraid and people are Mm. really stretched. But that's kind of interesting. If there's no harm, there's no problem. Mm -hmm. um it means that we focus very much on constraint reliability and constraint so we put in more pathways more guidelines more Mm -hmm. boxes Mm -hmm. to be filled in um and and we put all this if So, what's that
1: and and we admonish people for not conforming and correcting via that yeah Yeah. this was this is the answer to your problems just make sure you follow the referral pathway totally
0: and you know go and learn the five moments of hand hygiene go and learn the five medication you know like it's a a really normative proceduralized approach. And it implies that you can proceduralize emergency medicine or you can proceduralize intensive care. And that's just not true. It's mm. just that's not possible. Um and it really I think um ties also into the way we think about adverse events when they're happening is that we you know we we start from a, a bad event. We we only look at when something bad happens. We look back, we we find the thing we think that made the problem, we go, aha, we have found it. And we will fix that, plug that Swiss mm. cheese hole. Um, we, we will
1: blame and retrain.
0: We will blame and retrain, <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess that's the thing is, you know, we, we kind of, we found the problem or the person and we're going to fix it. And this will never happen again. And because we have this illusion that we've learned something. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah, even even worse. It's not even whether or not that fixes the problem, but we have the illusion that it has <laughs>
0: if you read accident reports and incident reports they're full of should would or could you know we, we end up discussing what didn't happen rather than what did and those ideas of hindsight now come by so we kind of know about them but we don't see them in the way that we think about adverse
1: events Yes. Now, this is very interesting because I'm totally with you here and I've, having read a bit about safety too, it does seem that uh, the approach we're describing here is very flawed. That said, we've learned it, or at least we've learned to give analogies to other organisations like mining and aviation and others where the accident investigation has been the primary way of getting better. Uh, and arguably, it has sort of worked for some of those industries. Am I wrong about that? So it's not all bad.
0: No, look, I think look, um, there's this kind of mythology about safety too, which is that all adapt, all adaptation is awesome. You know, the fact that people are wearing plastic bags on on their heads for COVID is, you know, that's a sign of the workarounds and the awesomeness. It, it's it's not, you know, it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a highly <laughs> unsafe system. You yeah, know, there is a base level of reliability. You know, that's mm-hmm. that has to go into it. The difficulty is that. What we're finding is that it, that kind of one model of safety takes you so far, mm. but then you start reaching the limits of what they can deliver and and even in aviation you know they're finding now that they're getting this risk of over proceduralization mm-hmm. you know that it's really hard and um in my studies you know with with my classmates and um uh, the there were people from aviation who were really describing the same problem and they they don't have it sorted no mm-hmm. one's got it sorted and when you talk about healthcare work. They just can't believe how complex and uncertain and and messy it is.
1: Yeah, and that uh, seems to call out for more and more regulation, whereas I think what you're saying is there's a balance. You're still going to use your brief checklist just before you do your intubation, but you're not going to try and write out a protocol for how to investigate abdominal pain in the ED. No.
0: And look, I can talk about it later in the work, but we use checklists more, but we use them in a different way. They're not used for compliance, they're used as an artefact of of Mm -hmm. distributed cognition, you know, the way that we think about our work. Um, And and so it's not saying it's a free-for-all where people cope uh, or there's reliability. It's saying that, you know, certain ways of looking at the world, you learn certain things, but actually they also limit what you see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if that makes
1: sense yeah yeah it makes sense but I think it'll make sense as you sort of take us then to thinking about these concepts about resilience healthcare principles
0: so one of the key concepts of safety too is that really is that we because we work in a complex and dynamic situation that there's not things that go right and things that go wrong it's we're constantly balancing all these different goals And Mm -hmm. it's the performance variability that usually makes us safe. Mm -hmm. So it's the decisions you make in ED that you admit this person, refer this person, send this person home, whatever it is, that's the bit of how you keep the system going. Um, And so we're constantly making these trade-offs about, uh, you know, uh, being efficient enough and being thorough enough. And so the realities of work are really different to this idea of, that people have of our systems who don't do work in them. And, yeah. and so one of the key concepts in, in, in uh, Safety 2 is really this idea that, that work is done. The realities of work are very, very different to the work as imagined by people who don't do the work.
1: Yes, and this trade-offs thing, I couldn't agree with you more, and it's a framework I love talking about in simulation debriefing because I think to out those trade-offs yeah. is really important because otherwise, you're right, we feel as though we are less than because we haven't achieved perfect. Yeah. But actually, we've achieved good because we've been able to let go of some things that we've decided to trade off. And let's actually just explicitly say that we are going to run some risks of safety. But because this patient's got an expanding extradural, we are going to get to CT really fast. Yeah. And we've actually t- said, and we're going to say explicitly, we've got some risks here because speed actually matters.
0: And this speaks to the whole idea of this, this complex system we work in. Risks are built into the whole system. Doing things have risk not doing things also has Mm risks. Say, for example, a checklist. We will use a checklist really differently for a a cold intubation of a a drug overdose than we will for a hot case that's coming down for a crash intubation for the ward. We might Mm -hmm. pre-brief it and then very limited sort of things once the patient arrives. We'll preload that work. Mm. so it's it's much more about responding to conditions and so in this view safety is not about reliability safety is about the ability to meet conditions
1: mm-hmm. this is really uh, quite a fundamental change isn't it as you say it's not will we do the checklist or not it is which part of the systematized healthcare can we plug into this situation that will be so appropriate and which won't be
0: yeah absolutely and that's that's where people are really good and one of the things in a complex system is that people are really good at recognizing changing conditions and responding flexibly to them. A technical solution is designed with certain conditions and certain parameters in mind and it work really well under those stable situations. But, but it won't work when things are really changing very, really quickly, and, and that's where you need people. And so it's the people within the system that provide that ability to respond flexibly, to reprioritize, to bring additional resources to bear, to, to see that patient sooner than this patient even though things you know it, it just someone's told you they don't look right
1: yeah and for then for our individual and team and organizational learning this fits into some of these frameworks about positive deviance as well as this idea of learning from success and adaptation and uh, peter diekman's excellent article about yeah. simulating the everyday because yeah. there's so much to learn and i think what you're saying is thinking about how to expand the good practice uh, and the resilience is probably one of the challenges that we have as opposed to merely telling people don't forget the blah
0: yeah absolutely and I I guess that's that speaks to this idea that this fundamentally changes the way we think about safety from safety as an absence to safety as the presence of the ability to create you know this Mm. this to navigate risk successfully to meet conditions
1: all right. Well, I'm going to push you now because I feel like we need to get practical on this. And in particular, sure. we need to think a little bit about the simulation practice because you're destroying the idea that, uh, you know, we have a couple of bad intubations or our first pass success rate drops down and now we've got to take the registrars and the nurses off and train them up to be better. Uh, I think you're saying that maybe that might be a little bit of a simple or simplistic approach. Is that right?
0: Well, I mean, if your problem is that people don't know how to intubate, then yeah, sure, that's, that might be a <laughs> But if your problem is, you know, the equipment's not there or the, the, the load in the unit's really high or whatever is going on, then that's a different problem. You talk about translational simulation is really about simulation for what. And I guess it's that part of this is, is when we're thinking about the solutions we're going to put in place, we have to understand what's going on for when our first pass success rate goes down. What's going on? Not how do they stuff up, but why did that send the right thing? What made that make sense to that person at that time? And could someone in that same situation do the same thing?
1: And this is where some of our traditional quality improvement tools might be good. I mean, we might have an audit that shows it's a particular practitioner group that is problematic. We might have an audit that shows that when you use the CMAC with the disposable blades, the post-pass success rate is low. If we have some good Tools, they may actually augment our approach here to really understanding the context, which is a little bit different to just finding the problem.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's the thing is, you know, is, uh, there's a large literature that feeds into these ideas. And one of them is about, you know, the cognition in the wild, the distributed cognition, Ed Hutchins, mm-hmm. fabulous book. And really thinking about, you know, well, how do we support successful practice? How do we create conditions that support things going well as much as possible? Do they have, you know, the tools they need? Do they understand what's going on? How's the team functioning? How do we create mm. those conditions to support success rather than just put in barriers to prevent people doing the wrong thing?
1: Mm. Okay. All right. well, well, what should we do in simulation, do you think?
0: Well, um, the things I struggled with in simulation were really about the fact that I keep on doing lots of effort and I'd be really concentrating on my debriefing and I'd be doing all these things and, and I wouldn't see the change in the floor that I really hoped for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of came to this understanding that it was like trying to change the color of the pool by dripping the red coloring in the corner. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. if I just did it more, if I just put more color in, then the pool would change. But what I came to realize was that 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 actually there's some fundamental rethinking about simulation that we need to do to think about how do we how does this change things. So the first of all, is that when you're thinking about complex systems, you have to understand that. It's not about people and how we train them. It's about people in systems and how do we make them work better. And so for that to happen, you have to look at people in their system and their, the artifacts they use, the teams they normally work in, the environments they work in, the cultural context and the, the organizational priorities that they normally work in. You mm-hmm. can't take them out and fix the components and put them back. Mm. Yeah. You have to understand them as situated within this broader context. And so to me, that means... We should be doing in situ. We, we, we need to be thinking about the way people normally work, doing what they normally do with the normal equipment they have. And and so to me, the, one of the fundamental things is this is, moves us from an educational event to really a, an exploratory part of business as usual and improving the mm-hmm. way we work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so that's the first thing for me.
1: This is not teamwork or team performance as imagined, but as done. And you're saying the location matters. And I heard you say that's because of real equipment, real environment. Yeah. I didn't hear you say, but I think you implied also real teams, which is oh, yeah, often more than, than doctors and nurses, yeah, which totally. traditionally have been the only people that I've seen at team training. Uh, Ward clerks, HCA's, uh, we have them all. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's new elements of so-called fidelity here, isn't it, yeah. that uh, if we want transferability you're saying that the environment and the context, but also maybe the cultural and psychological environment as much as the physical one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The first step is it's not about education. So if we think about resilient performance is really important, this idea about this team that can recognise changing conditions and that can that has general adaptive capacity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then we need to train for that particularly. So a drill mm-hmm. says, here is what happens, here's what you do, we're going to do it until you get it right. Adaptive capacity says, "Here's a problem. We're going to make a great team. That's awesome. We've got a, a, the team's working really, really well. Um, and now we're going to make it do a ninety-degree turn. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it recognize and respond to change. And, and so, for us in our practical, th- practical way we do that is we'll have a simulation that is very much about you know." Does everyone know what's going on? Do we know who's doing what? Are we clear in our communication and our leadership? And you know? And we'll do that as our first sim. And then our second sim will be like, great, that's working amazingly. Look how well you're doing. And now we're going to make you just turn 90 degrees from what you think you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so that really that ability to recognize and respond to change. And we've built in some of those capacities for resilience, like the ability to anticipate, to monitor, you know, to, knowing what to look for, knowing what to keep an eye out for, knowing what we'll do about it if we see it. Um, and Mm. then being able to respond to it. So that's the uh, capacities to anticipate, to monitor, to respond and learn. And those are considered the sort of four capacities for resilient performance. Mm. And we've intentionally built those into a framework uh, that we we teach.
1: Yeah, and that's really good to be explicit about that. And I think what you're describing then is a deviation from the behaviourist approach, which is, oh, there's head injury. We've done a sim on that. So now we know how to deal with head injury. Oh, but we haven't done... Uh, malignant hypothermia, so we don't know how to deal with that. Whereas what you're saying is you're these are a, a higher up level mm. of team capabilities that means whatever is the uh, content of the challenge, there is the generic skill sets and approaches uh, and they are shared by the team. Mm. And,
0: and just coming to it, I think you know we very often we we keep going on about things like low hanging fruit of you know feedback loops and things like that and you know closing the loop and all that those aren't necessarily the low hanging fruit. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I think you know the framework that we but we realise that if if you know does everyone know who's what's going on? So we talk about building a team rather than a group of people in a room. Does everyone know uh, who's doing what? Talking about role allocation, leadership. Are we are we clear in our communication? And then this ability, once you have a team that is basically people who are working on a shared goal, who understand what their roles are, are doing these things, then really, how do we achieve our goals even when things are changing? So, mm-hmm. so really, you have to see these as dependent. So, when we talk about low hanging fruit of, you know, closing the loop, uh, close that communication is low hanging fruit. Well, if you don't know what you're trying to do as a team, and you don't know who you should be talking to, then you won't know who you should really be closing the loop with. So it's really seeing these as dependencies that build advanced team skills through sequentially sort of building those things. And Mark Meyer and San Diego was a great help in that, sort of understanding that sort of hierarchy of how we need to build the team.
1: Yeah, and so this is very um, sophisticated simulation design, if I might just go out on a limb here. Very thoughtful. (laughs) Uh, So, And I think people will be interested to know just with a little bit more granularity step us through what that looks like in terms of a session that you're running both what happens before and i appreciate there's already a bunch of cultural norms and expectations amongst your group maybe but what happens before and then what happens when they arrive and then what happens sort of during and afterwards
0: so we i mean we have a small sim program we don't We have a faculty that is all entirely in-house. We have uh, monthly sessions which involve nursing staff, medical staff, um, ward clerks, HCAs. They are the registrars. There's a curriculum that overlays the SIMs they have. Um, So they have the six simulations throughout their run with us, um, as well as introductory SIMs when they first arrive the nursing staff will have their own curriculum of education for their study days but because we work as a shared education team we bring those together for the sim mm-hmm. sessions we never try and teach them skills or knowledge in the sims that's all mm-hmm. preloaded, either on yep. the day or at previous times
1: yeah
0: and on the simulation day itself we we are doing it in the unit in our icu in real bed spaces with real equipment mm-hmm. There is a briefing about the framework and we repeatedly talk about that and how that looks and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how it works. Um, And the idea is we explain to them that we're going to show you how teams function. We're going to reveal how teams function, what what makes a difference, rather than we're going to teach you. Mm
1: -hmm, Right, yep.
0: We'll then run the scenario, debrief it, and the first scenario is about building a team. So it's often a simulation that will push people, but it's more about how do you build an effective team. Mm-hmm. And being quite clear about that, um, and the second scenario is then about how does the team respond when when things are changing. One of the things we've we've learned along the way is that that you, it does change the way you debrief. So very early on, I don't know about uh, uh, other people listening to this, but we used to talk about leadership a lot. The leader didn't do this, the leader didn't do that, or we talk about speaking up, just an enormous amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what we end up finding was that actually when we debrief the whole team, it's quite different. If they say the leader didn't do this, you say, well, why didn't you help them? What's going on there? Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: yeah. And so
0: we have really big emphasis on active followership.
1: We, and, res- and collective responsibility yeah, for totally, leadership. Yeah.
0: And, and leadership is just creating this space for people to step into, to contribute mm. into. And it was really interesting. When we got to this whole idea about does everyone know what's going on? Does everyone know what the roles are? are we clear what it should look like and what might happen? Speaking up disappeared.
1: Yeah, the right. The whole problem was
0: speaking up went away.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The problem is not speaking up. The problem was not knowing what, what they should be worried yeah. about, what's going on.
1: yeah. Yeah, but more of a shared mental model than yeah. putting than than positioning this as a, a conversation against hierarchy.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's rather than saying to people you know you should speak up and overcome hierarchical barriers, mm. we're saying let's <laughs> create space for the team to contribute, and you don't have to.
1: That's right. You should be empowered to speak. Yeah.
0: Up. I empower you as long as I choose to and then I'll take my (laughs) foot off your neck (laughs) for as long as I want. All
1: right. So this sounds, uh, so you started debriefing differently because you just found that because you were using that framework, the conversations went differently.
0: Totally. It's one of the things is it's not simulation as event, it's simulation as program, as a feedback loop and a Mm -hmm. strategy over time and the changes take, you know, a couple of years.
1: And I imagine you've seen a lot of then transference of this framework into your teams, the on the floor with your real patients, the language and the frameworks matter.
0: The other thing that really struck us was that simulation was ten percent of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and and what I mean by that is it wasn't a simulation program, it was really a team a mm. resilient performance program, and yeah. and the, the sim was about revealing how it works. But the big gains came when we set up a feedback loop um, and the feedback loop was the same people who were faculty in our simulation program were also clinicians on the floor as senior leaders, as educators, as specialists. Um, and so they were modeling that same framework, that same way of talking about things, that same approach in everyday work. And mm. like the framework wasn't designed for a, a resource. It was designed for thinking mm. about how we do a ward round or how we might do a project. Those, those same team behaviors apply. And so, yeah,
1: Which are 95% of the work. The recesses are pretty small um, out of the work in an intensive care unit.
0: But you think how often we do CPR compared to how much of our teamwork is not CPR.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I would hope not. All right. Well, this so this is a a different way of thinking that builds on, I think a lot of the skills that I'm sure uh, we have learned as simulation providers. I, I can imagine people listening to this going, wow, that's amazing. And I'm going to distill out a few things from what you've said that I would suggest to those people. And then I'll ask you for some tips for them, but it sounds like it's worth getting yourself well, educated about patient safety concepts and maybe about resilient healthcare. It sounds like it's worth making sure that you've got a guiding framework that is going to be useful. And it sounds like you need to make sure this is something that is embraced by a group of you who are important, influential, and everyday uh, clinicians within the unit because this has to be something you all believe in, not just something you do. Yeah,
0: definitely. There's a really great book by um, Dan Santolo on um, complex contagions, how behavior mm-hmm. spreads. And it's a yep. fantastic book. And it says, you know, if you're asking people to do socially risky things like change the way they behave, you have to yep. create social reinforcement. And, and to me, that last bit, this idea of interwoven simulation, it's not yeah. in centre, it's not in situ, it's interwoven. These, these ways of thinking about the way we talk and debrief and work as a team is woven into everyday work. Um, yeah. Without that, it's, it will, you can do more and more efforts, but you'll be fighting a losing battle because the, 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 the everyday work will, will counter it.
1: Yeah, I might send over our in-house anthropologist to do some yeah. work with you. Sounds like you are the perfect case study in uh, watching the culture of groups emerge through this kind of shared experience. I think one of the things
0: to realise is that culture is something you have to pay attention to. It's not something you yeah. can structurally impose. With our COVID response, we we relied very heavily on this these relationships and these ways of thinking about the world that we built up with the fish control team. So, so although we started with a sim program, it's it's kind of come out to just the way we work and yeah. it's spread out into lots of other parts of the unit as well
1: mm, and i'm sure actually empowered the team to recognize they can be the agents of change and uh, and of shaping their own culture not just being yeah. a victim of it as somehow a barrier to getting things done so uh this is pretty important and it sounds like a great story when someone comes to you who wants proof uh yeah. what do you tell them
0: and I guess this is a really key issue with simulation at the moment, is everyone says, show me ROI. You know, what's the yeah, return yeah. on investment? Yeah. Um, we were lucky we had a business manager who said, well, of course, people are talking about work and getting better at it. It's a good thing. It's just business as usual, you know. We, we unfortunately didn't do a safety issues questionnaire or some other kind of structural thing at the start, and that may have been useful and it definitely would have shown mm-hmm. a change. We had to go for a qualitative approach, which was also useful. But the actual way that we were working um, – it's really weird because the value to the people on the floor was very apparent.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. And can I ask, because you've obviously got uh, a concentration of excellence in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. How have you gone infiltrating and uh, infecting the other departments around the hospital with similar mindsets and and approaches?
0: I'm lucky that the hospital I work at is really relational. So Middlemore is this Mm -hmm. kind of place that runs on the relationships across the hospital we put in a, a, a bit about 10, 12 years ago to sort of roll this out across the whole hospital, and it, you know, and it just didn't happen. And that was yeah. part of – they were like, no, nope, we're going to do what we have to do, which is puff and blow, you know, ACLS kind of stuff. And, and we, we couldn't get that happening. But, so we haven't rolled out the simulation program as such to other places in the hospital. We did for a while start doing it on the wards, um, and that was really successful because people were talking about work but again, without that core of people who were who were sustaining it, mm-hmm. it became really hard. What we have seen, however, is that the ideas that inform our simulation, the same ideas of resilience, healthcare, of relational ways of working, about building this resilient performance and of building thinking about the way we support teams to succeed, that's something we can roll out just through discussions about saying, how does this, what does this look like for you in your place? And so we've started seeing you know, our burn teams having different kinds of debriefing, thinking about the artifacts we design to sort of um, understand what's going on with our burns. Um, infection control, like I say, basically going into place and saying, hey, show me how you work. Not, mm-hmm. not coming in with a checklist and an audit form, but actually saying, "Just can I just watch you work for a while? Yeah. See what's going on. So yeah. it's it's like planting a seed and then just growing it over time. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a way of thinking about the world rather than a program that you roll out. It's not pilot and scale. It's a, it's a way of seeing the world that you can progress over time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think your terminology, interwoven simulation or interwo- interwoven yeah. teamwork development is uh, is really germane here. So if I might just sort of say, again, coming back to the simulcast listeners who are envious and impressed, and I think you've given us a little bit of a practical sense of what you do, but are there a couple of other things that you would suggest people read or watch or listen to
0: there's some really good background sort of stuff that i think is worth looking at there's a lovely uh, article by there's a lovely video by nikki case called seeing whole systems and he talks about mm-hmm. reinforcing loops and, and balancing loops and if you think about that from a simulation point of view it's a really lovely video it's got a mm-hmm. um, it's, it's something i'd really recommend um daniel centolo how behavior spreads i think this idea of complex contagion i think it's a really useful mm-hmm. one um There's a great book called Improving uh, Improving Healthcare Team Communication by Chris Mm Nimmin, and there's Mm -hmm. a fabulous chapter in there by a guy called Eric Eisenberg on the social construction of teams. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really useful background to this as well, because it's really mm. thinking less about transmissive communication and much more about constructed communication. And obviously, I, you know, I'll say the chapter we write's got some. It's probably a bit clearer about about some yep. of these ideas.
1: Excellent. Well, I will. I will dig out those links and put them in our show notes for those listening, uh, because I think it's music to my ears to hear the fact that if you want to be talking to teams about their teamwork, uh, understanding some team science, and as you said, in particular the social. Uh, context in which teamwork operates is just so important well i think this is unlikely to be the last appearance for you on simulcast carl uh you'll be coming back if i have anything to do with it but that's i think been super helpful because as i said i think Simulation and patient safety have been tossed around as things that uh, naturally fit, but I'm not sure the match has been cons- consummated appropriately just yet. So, safety two might be one of the ways that this starts to happen.
0: I think simulation is, is really key to this way of adaptive teams. You know, I think it's, it's, if we think about the system relies on people working together to create good care despite the risks we face, simulation has got to be part of it. It's, it's, just, yeah. it's just a no brainer. Um, But we have to think differently about how we do that.
1: Excellent. Well, Carl, thanks for your time again. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing what's next at Middlemore and elsewhere. And uh, with that, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for listening to Simulcast.